We're up to principle number eight of the 13 Principles of Faith. And I think this is the most important of all the discussions and all the principles that we have discussed hitherto, because principle number eight is the idea of the divinity of the Torah. Who wrote the Torah? Who delivered to us the Torah? Where does the Torah come from? We believe that we have it from the Almighty. And I think that, of course, that's the central claim of our people and our religion, but it's also the backbone of everything that we have discussed up to this point and that we're going to discuss from here on out. In all the 13 principles of faith, the Rambam substantiates his argument or his claim or his position via verses in the Torah. So everything we learned about God, how do we know that? Well, because the Torah tells it to us. And thus, by proving the veracity of the Torah, by extension, we're going to know the truth of all the other principles of faith. So this is kind of the, the foundation of all the foundations is the fact that we have a divine Torah. So today what we're going to do is we're going to read the intricate text of the Rambam in how he describes it, because he's going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to try to assemble that to try to really understand what he's saying as we begin this very important phase of our discovery, and that is the discussion of the divinity of the Torah. Okay, so let's begin with the Rambam. The Rambam begins, the eighth principle is that the Torah is min ashamayim, the Torah is from heaven, the Torah is divine. And that is that we believe that the Torah that we have, that was given to us via Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu of blessed memory, is entirely from the Almighty. The Almighty conveyed it to him, and he conveyed it to us. The Rambam continues by telling us that Moshe had no editorial oversight, he had no flexibility, he had no poetic license to add or to subtract or to embellish from his own thoughts, from his own perception. Rather, he simply conveyed the Torah, the written Torah, verbatim, and the oral Torah, the way he understood it, from God. Moses is akin to a sofer, a scribe, or a chronicler, or a stenographer in, in modern, in modern terms. Someone that you read to them, and they write what they are told. And the Raman breaks down the Torah, or the written Torah, into two components, namely the stories and the mitzvos. So Moshe has told the stories, he's told the mitzvos, and he writes them down. Continues the Rambam, and there is no difference between the verses. So he quotes some verses that we may think, oh, these are throwaway verses, right? For example, the verse tells us in the beginning of Genesis, the lineage of the sons of Noah, the sons of Ham, of Ham, are Cush and Mitzrayim. We're like, well, that's, that's, that's a verse that's important to know, but how important is it really? Or his wife was Mahatvael, or Timnah, what was his mistress, was his concubine. Those are verses that we say, you know, we, or we would initially view them as being not so important. Says the Ram, there's no difference between those verses and the verses, I am the Lord your God, the first of the Ten Commandments, Shema Yisrael, of course, the declaration of the Jewish people. All of them have the same prominence because they're all from the Almighty to Moses to us and they're all part of the Almighty's complete Torah and they're all holy and they're all pure and they're all true. 
And therefore, like the Talmud tells us, it's a very problematic statement to say, well, this is really awesome Torah. This, eh, I could do without. It's a little bit more cumbersome. It's a little bit more difficult to study. When we assign hierarchy in Torah, in Torah verses, it's a big problem because we may be running afoul with this principle that everything is from the Almighty. If everything's from the Almighty, everything's important, everything has value, everything's true, everything's part of this collective Torah, and therefore it's a problem to assign hierarchy. And the Ram tells us something very surprising. The worst type of heretic, the worst type of non-believer is someone who says, well, this is divine, but not this. When someone says these verses or these stories, Moshe made them up himself. Behold, he's considered amongst our sages and our prophets as a kofar, as a heretic, and as someone who's a magala pundit, which means he, it's literally translated as he reveals a face, but it means that he says this is important, this is not important. And this is the worst of all the heretics because he views the Torah as if it has the fruit and the shell, the fruit and the peel, you know, there's parts of it that are valuable and parts of it are just there, you know, for for other purposes. When someone has that perception, they are in the category of, of heresy, even if they claim that parts of it are divine, but this part was added in later, this part was Mo- Moses made it up, this part is not so important, that already renders them a heretic. And this is all included in the Mishnah, in the book of Sanctuary, page ninety. A, where it says that the class of people that lose the portion all about, one of those people is someone who says the Torah is not divine. And the way this is explained is that if someone believes and someone professes that the entire Torah is from God, with the exception of one verse, that God didn't write himself via Moses. That Moses made up on his own, behold, that is someone who is already included in the verse that they have disgraced the word of God and they already lose the portion of Allah. They don't believe in the divinity of the Torah. So this is the introduction, the idea of the Torah being divine. And as of now, we're talking about the written Torah, the five books of Moses, the 5,845 verses, those five books, part of the Torah, written Torah we got from Moses. He just transcribed, he wrote down what God told him, and every word and every verse is divine. And the Ram continues by saying that there's, there's depth and there's multidimensionality in the Torah. And therefore there's going to be value in every verse. And there's going to be unfathomable depth that's only accessible via assiduous diligence and via prayer. Continues the Rambam. Every word and every verse in the Torah, behold, it has wonders and wisdom to the people who understand it. And he's telling us, even those verses that we think are throwaway verses, there's tremendous value in it. And you won't understand it completely because it is as broad as the land and as wide as the ocean of infinite depth and, and breadth. And the way we should treat those verses is not by disregarding them. Rather, we should follow the example of King David. And it quotes a verse in Psalms 119 that he prayed to God, Gal Uncover my eyes and let me see the wonders of your Torah. So this is the Rambam's explanation of the written Torah, the divinity of the written Torah. 
every word is from God to Moses. Moses added none of his own, none of his own, and every word in every verse has value and depth, and therefore we don't assign a hierarchy. And then he transitions to talk about the oral Torah. And a component of this principle, the divinity of the Torah, is that the oral Torah is also divine. And not just the scholarship of the oral Torah, but the actual application of the Torah. And that that we do today in making a circa and what it looks like, and making a shaking a lulav, and blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, and wearing tzitzis, and tefillin, and all the mitzvos of that ilk, that is exactly the way the Almighty described it to Moshe, who was trustworthy and believable in his in his job. And the Ram concludes, what is the verse in the Torah that indicates the divinity of the Torah itself? And he quotes a verse from the episode of Korach, where Moses announces to the public, to the people, these people are going to die, but not an ordinary death. An extraordinary death, a miraculous death. The Almighty is going to create a sinkhole that's going to swallow up only them and their family and their conspirators. And Moses tells them, through this you shall know that the Almighty sent me to do all these things. I didn't do it from my own conviction, from my own heart. He sent me, and that indeed proves that Moses was sent by God, and he is legit as someone who is going to convey to us the word of God. That's the text of the Rambam. Now, one of the obvious questions is, you know, the Rambam himself told us that the divinity of the Torah is based upon the Sinai experience. And here he seems to be basing it on this verse in the story of Korach, that the sinkhole opened and Moses says, this was not me sending this, this was God. So that's a question we'll have to address hopefully in the future. Okay, so that's, that's the text of the Rambam. Let's try to parse it out, see what he's telling us. And here I want to stress this is the central element of the 13 principles. We're going to be spending hopefully a lot of time on this principle to understand it from every angle, understand what he's talking about. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot of misconceptions to clear away, and we always do that at the beginning. And many critical concepts to understand, so let's begin. So I want to begin with the major misconception, the grandfather of the misconceptions, the mothership of the misconceptions, and then the minor misconception. The major misconception is one that those who question the divinity of the Torah focus on. And they ask the wrong questions, and the discussion is oriented around the wrong subject because they they have a misconception of what is the claim. I've, in the past, looked at the Wikipedia article on higher Bible criticism, Namely, the scholarship questioning the authorship of the Torah. And I don't, I haven't looked at it recently, so I don't wonder if, they, if someone has actually edited Wikipedia to make it more accurate. But the first line was that it used to be the tradition was that the author of the Torah was Moses. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's not what we believe. If we don't believe that Moses is the author. Moses is the one who wrote it down. But he's not the author. He, he, he's the scribe. He's the stenographer. He's the chronicler. He's writing it down. But the words originate from God. We believe God's the author. And thus, it's an entirely different framing of the question. It's not like, did Moses write it or did a bunch of other people write it? Did Ezra write it? Did Jeremiah write it? Did King Solomon write it? Did some other random redactor write it? That's a question that we would have. But that's not even our claim. Our claim is not that Moses is the author. Our claim is God is the author. Moses is the one who wrote it. That's the major misconception. 
But I think if we read the Rambam, what we see by reading it and ruminating on the various different things that he puts together here, he talks about the divinity of the written Torah, every word, every word has value. He talks about the oral Torah, and he talks about Moses' role, or lack thereof. It seems like there's a lot of different moving parts to one idea. And what struck me, and maybe this is obvious to everyone else besides for me, what struck me is that there's a deep insight that the Ram's telling us and the way it's being framed here. You know, people often frame the question, even if we dispense with the major misconception, people frame the question as follows. I think this is the incorrect way of framing it. We have a Torah. Who wrote it? Did God write it via Moses? Or did people or one person or Moses or Ezra, or is it of human authorship or is it of godly divine authorship? What I, real, what I realize is there's a much deeper question at play. What is the nature of the corpus of Torah that we have? Our nation has maintained the bold and audacious claim that we have the Almighty's Torah. It's not like we have a book. Okay, here's a book. Who wrote it? It's a question of like the byline. You know, who, who is the author of this book? It's a much deeper, more profound question. We're claiming that we don't have an ordinary book with a divine author. We claim that we have a divine book. The whole framing of the Torah from our perspective is that we're privy to an entirely different paradigm. We have a divine Torah, not just a book, a regular book, an ordinary book with an extraordinary divine author. Everything about the Torah, from our perspective, is different than an ordinary book. So, for example, the Ram hinted at this. We'll talk about this at more length with the Ramban. What's the timeline? When do we have the Torah? When was the Torah written? So, if you would ask the scholars, or even if you would ask us, we may say, hey, you know, Moses gave us the Torah... The Talmud gives two opinions. Either he wrote it incrementally over the course of 40 years or he wrote it at the end of 40 years. So how long ago is that? Well, according to Jewish tradition, uh, Moses passes in the year 1272, I believe it is, before the Common Era. So we're talking, you know, roughly 3,300 years ago. That would be the claim maybe that we would have had yesterday. But we believe that it's much more profound than that. We have a divine Torah with a divine timeline. Says the Talmud, the Torah preceded the world by 974 generations. I think we mentioned that in the past. In addition, we have another very cryptic teaching in the Talmud. The Torah was always extant before God, but it was in a different format. It was black fire on top of white fire, meaning that the Torah existed before the world was created in a different, in a different way, in a different format. Black fire on top of white fire. What that means, I don't know. Maybe we could try to understand that later. The Kabbalists tell us that the Almighty used the Torah as a blueprint for creating the world. Alma, the Almighty looked at the Torah and through those lenses, so to speak, created the world. 
So again, we're not talking about a book that appears a few thousand years ago and say, okay, who's the author? We're talking about a book that preceded the world. It has that divine quality, just like the Almighty preceded the world, the Almighty's knowledge, the Almighty's wisdom, the Almighty's book, the Almighty's Torah also preceded the world. That's part of our claim. That's part of the idea of a divine Torah. It's not just that the byline is divine. The timeline is divine as well. Okay, that's one component of this principle. In addition, the content of the book, it's not like we have ordinary content, oh, this is just a, a way better author. It's divine kind of content as well. So for example, we know that there's many predictions in the Torah. It's easy, relatively easy, to harmonize the past with your biases. Two people can look at the same event and each one has a different filter, a different way of seeing the world. And each one could, could jigger the past to fit into their, their current framework of understanding. What's hard is to predict the future. And we see many instances of the Torah, Torah makes predictions. Now, if this is an ordinary book, you wouldn't imagine that they would be accurate in their predictions because who knows the future? We don't know the future. But of course, the Almighty is just out of time and space. And therefore, the idea of the future is as clear to God as the present and the, and the past is to us, even much more clearer. And therefore, we see an element of the content of the Torah being also of divine origin because it's making predictions. And this is kind of hinted at what the Ram is telling us. He's telling us that every verse that you think is a throwaway verse, it has layers of understanding that are as broad as the ocean, as wide as the land, as, 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 as deep, as unfathomable as the infinite. What he's telling us is that the content of the Torah is different. There's deeper and deeper layers of understanding. There is no empty calories, extra fat, throwaway verses that can be ignored. I mentioned in the past, I own a book. I was actually thinking about bringing it. I didn't end up bringing it. I own a book authored by one of my antecedents. Uh, his name was uh, Rabbi Shapiro, and he was the rabbi of the city of Krakow, one of the big Jewish cities in Poland, lived uh, about 400 years ago. And he wrote a book on one verse in the Torah. How can you write a whole book in one verse? It must be maybe the Ten Commandments because it contains everything. No, it's the first verse of the Parsha of Eschanan where Moses is negotiating with God as to whether or not he's going to be allowed to go into the land of Israel. And this book has 252 ways to explain exactly the dialogue between Moses and God. You read the dialogue, it seems pretty straightforward. Moses wants to go into the land of Israel. God says no. Okay. End of story. Well, no. We go into the Kabbalistic level. We have a book that you could still buy today. I have a copy of it on my desk that talks about 252 different ways, and each one of them proven based upon all the sources as to what that conversation was. We know that the Gon of Vilna had 2,260 different ways to explain another verse in the Torah, Alu Zebanegev, talking about ascending Israel from the south. 2,260 different interpretations of that verse. The Talmud talks about the Torah being comparable to a stone that you shatter with a hammer. Just as when you shatter a stone with a hammer, there are shards and pieces that go in all kinds of different directions, so too when you study Torah on a deep level, there's all different facets and elements of Torah that you are discovering. Again, the idea of many, many, maybe infinite layers of understanding of insight baked into the Torah and divine content. 
The Talmud itself says that every verse in the Torah can be understood in a minimum of 70 different ways. 70 different facets of the Torah. We have a concept, and these are all, by the way, ideas that we're going to try to get into when we go into each subject on its own. The Talmud talks about the concept of Elu ve'elu divrakim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. When it quotes two sages, each one of them being independently correct, but being mutually exclusive. This, to us, makes our brain tough pretzel, right? How is that possible? There's only one truth, right? There's only one truth, and he's saying X, and he's saying Y, and they're opposites, but they're both true, says the Talmud. What does that mean? It means that there's different layers. Torah is the truth, but the Torah is multidimensional, and therefore it can stomach, it can be okay, it can tolerate the fact that on one layer of understanding, X is true, on a second layer of understanding, Y is true, and they're both true on different dimensions of, of Torah. We have also the concept, we'll talk about it in a little bit, of the Torah containing all the world's wisdom. We think, what's the Torah? Well, it's kind of a hard question to answer because, well, we have stories, so there's narrative, there's the family story, there's the story of the Jewish people, uh, there's kind of the, the, the big sweeping statements about everything, there's the mitzvos, there's a lot of different things, that a lot of different concepts and topics that the Torah talks about, and we're told by tradition that really everything is there. Everything about everything is in the Torah. Where is it? That's where it gets mysterious. That's where it's hard for us to unpack. But we'll talk about this in a little bit. The fact that, again, these are components of the fact that when we claim we have a divine Torah, it's not just the question of authorship. It's the question of content. We claim that the content of the Torah is divine because it's predictive, because it's multi-layered, and because it really contains everything, the wisdom about everything, is all within it. The next component of the divine Torah is language. The Torah is written in what language? So if we were uninitiated, we would say, well, it's in Hebrew. And then if you're a real clever scholar, you say, well, actually, there's two words in Aramaic. Because when Laban, when he calls the monument that he makes with him and Jacob, Jacob calls it one Hebrew name, Galaid, and Laban calls it Yudar Sahadusa, which we're told is Aramaic. So there's two words in Aramaic. So if you're a great scholar, you would say, well, most of the words are in Hebrew, two words in Aramaic. If you were even a greater scholar, you would say, yes, there's two words in Aramaic, but there's also several words in other language called uh, Afriki, maybe African languages, namely the Talmud tells the book of Central page 5b, that the word totafot, which is the Hebrew word for tefillin, or the Torah word for tefillin. What does that mean? That there's different places, one place called kafri, one place called afriti, and the word tot means this and that language, and pot means that and that language, and two plus two would tell you that there's four compartments in tefillin. So if you were a tremendous style, you would say, well, mostly Hebrew, and then you have a smattering of other languages, you have some words in Aramaic and some words in these other African or other languages as well. However, if you're even a greater style, you would say no. It's only in one language. It's called Lashon HaKodesh, which means the holy language, which means the divine language, which means it's a different kind of language that is not Hebrew. While it is true that the language of Hebrew can be used to understand one layer of the Torah, again, the Torah is written on a divine level. Just like you take the Torah and translate it into English, you may have a very good translation 
But that is not the same language the Torah is written in. The Torah is written in the way it's written, the holy language. One layer of understanding is the simple layer that can be deduced, or most of it can be deduced, if you're a rudimentary Hebrew speaker. That's indeed true. However, that's not what we claim. We claim that the Torah is written in a divine language called Lashon Kodesh, the holy language. So what does that even mean? What it means is that there's an entirely different way of communicating that is it's extant in only one language, the holy language, and only found in the Torah. And that is that the words are not words by mutual agreement, but the words are absolute. Meaning that when the Torah assigns a word to something, it's not arbitrarily done. It's not, hey, let's get together the linguists and the philologists and all the people. Let's just agree on a word that we could all tolerate. It's because this word underlies the essence of this thing. God determined that this word is the correct word for this thing or this action. And then you have another layer, and that's the concept of homonyms. In English, a homonym, two words that are pronounced the same, they have the homophones, I think, which are words that you, you pronounce the same way, but you spell them differently, and that's just totally arbitrary. You could go to the county fair and it's really fair and balanced. Nothing to do with each other. But in the holy language, if there are two words that are spelled the same way and are pronounced the same way, even though they have divergent meanings, because they're part of the holy language, they're connected. They're the same on some dimension. Just as an aside, I was recently listening to some a scholar gave a lecture and he pointed out that the Hebrew word for a male dove is a yon, like a yona, but yon, which is the male version. And then you have the Hebrew name for Greece is yavan, but it's spelled the same way, a yud and then a vav and then a nun. And he built a whole lecture on the similarities and differences based upon this idea that a bird and a country and a, a culture have the same have the same name. And this, by the way, is found if you start studying the Torah with the commentaries, you'll see how much richness you're missing out by not reading it in it, the original language. Because the original language, when you have words or concepts or verses or phrases that don't seem at all to be related, and in English you don't find the connection because they're different words, you open up the Hebrew and you say, aha, deep insights because now we have this multi-layered language, the holy language, in which the homonyms are intrinsically connected. And they have a concept of gematria, where the letters are assigned numbers and thus words and phrases have numbers and thus those same words and phrases are related to other words and phrases that, uh, again, on the surface appear to not be connected at all but are connected because they have the same gematria. That's, again, part of this richness of this holy language in which concepts are connected and questions are resolved based on this other level of language that's not at all portable to any other language. Because the way this word is spelled and the letters that it's used to spell it, they give you a number and that number is a clue to try to unlock what that meaning is. Find that number elsewhere, you might find these connections. And of course, there's other layers. There's the Atbash, 
which is the idea of swapping letters. You can swap letters with letters that come before it, that come after it. You take the first 11 letters of the of the Hebrew alphabet and the last 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the first to first, first to begin and first to end or last to end, that is, they're conflatable on this higher level and you could develop all kinds of cool things or you could try to discover all kinds of cool things based upon the holy divine language in which the Torah is written. And then you have the idea of the Torah being written in in a way that things are being embedded, again, in the language, but throughout the words of a given verse, you'll have, you'll hit the first letter or the last letter, it'll spell out other things. Again, that shows this deep connection between ideas and insights that are again hidden within the language. And then we have the idea that these letters are divine letters. These are the letters that God used to create the world. And thus, by the shapes of the letters, by the position of the letters, by the way they look, most of these are totally beyond us, right? We're, we're, we're struggling trying to stand on a very basic level. But we'll discover that there are many other deeper levels that are present in the language itself. So, for example, there is a very interesting teaching that the Talmud tells us in the book of Sota, page 36b, regarding Joseph and Pharaoh. Joseph, of course, is appointed viceroy of Egypt, and he has a working arrangement, a working agreement with Pharaoh. Joseph is going to be in charge of all the affairs. Pharaoh is going to be the super boss atop of him. Now, the Talmud tells us that when Joseph was being vetted to be the king or the second in command, we had to inspect, or the Egyptians had to inspect, how well he speaks the languages. Because the rules of Egypt were that you had to be fluent in all the languages in order to be, to be, uh, to be a good candidate to be a king. So the Talmud tells us that an angel came all the night and taught him all the languages. So in the morning, he was tested. Okay, start your Swahili. No problem. French, no problem. Italian, no problem. All of them, no problem. 70 languages. Joseph is fluent in all of them. Great. But then Joseph says, well, you forgot one language. What about the holy language? Pharaoh's like, what are you talking about? So Joseph starts speaking to him the holy language. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know that language. And then Pharaoh realizes, oh, no, I got a problem. Because now there's a language that Joseph knows that I don't know. Thus, he's the legitimate king and I am disqualified. So Pharaoh says, listen, you have very damning information. Please promise me you won't divulge it. And Joseph promises, makes an oath, he won't divulge it. And indeed, Talmud tells us that when Joseph made an oath to his father, that he's going to bury him in the land of Israel, he tells Pharaoh, I want to go bury my father because I made an oath to him. And Pharaoh says, you know what? If I tell him to transgress the oath he made to his father, he may come to transgress the oath that he made to me, that he's not going to reveal that I can't speak Lashon Akosh, the holy language. And therefore, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not going to take any chances. Go bury Jacob in the land of Canaan because I'm scared that maybe you'll come to divulge the, the, the fact that I'm disqualified. You'll transgress the oath that you made to me if I force you to transgress the oath you made to your father. That's what the Talmud says. Now, there's the obvious question. You know, if you were to ask the following question, hey, is Pharaoh adept at languages? Well, you would have to say yes. After all, he is fluent 
He has literacy in 70 languages. Amazing. He obviously has a knack for it. Very talented, very gifted, very capable. Now he discovers that there's a language he doesn't know. So what's the obvious solution? Not to hide it, not to have this liability to rely on Joseph's integrity to not reveal it. Doesn't it make sense that he should just learn the language? Wouldn't that be the easier solution? You know, so many languages obviously you have a knack for it. Just learn this language. So Talmud says he tried to learn it. Couldn't do it. Now, that's a problem. If the Lashon Kodesh, if the holy language is just Hebrew, every Jew who makes Aliyah goes to Israel in three months, they spend three months in Ulpan. And even if they don't have a knack for languages, they can pick up a rudimentary Hebrew. Why did Pharaoh have such a hard time picking up Hebrew? The answer I'm sure everyone already knows, is because the language that was being discussed is not the language of Hebrew. It's the divine language, the language that the Torah was written in. And that language is multi-layered. That language is, I could say, X, and on the surface it's X, but the subtext is Y. You know, the example that we could give is with Joseph himself. And again, you would read the Torah, and if you would read it critically, you'd have the question, and you wouldn't have the answer unless you look at Rashi. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and they are initially are, are shell-shocked, and they can't talk, and he brings them closer to him, and he comforts them. He says, I'm, it's okay, don't worry about what you did to me. I forgive you. The Almighty orchestrated this all, and... Eventually, they gather their wits and he sends them on a mission to go bring Jacob down. You know, there's a famine. Bring him down and his whole family to uh, to join Joseph in Egypt. And the verse tells us that he sends wagons with them, 10 wagons to go gather all the stuff that Jacob has to bring him down to Egypt. So the brothers go to Jacob and they tell him Joseph's still alive. He's a king in Egypt and he doesn't believe them. And then he sees the wagons and he believes them. And he is once again given life and he his prophecy is restored. That's what Rashi tells us. So now if you read this critically, you're like, okay, he didn't believe them and finally he believed them. But if you read it critically, you'll notice that there's something about the wagons that tricks him off. He sees the wagons and suddenly it makes sense to him. What about the wagons is going to convince him that Joseph is still alive? So you look at Rashi, Rashi says, says something fascinating. The Hebrew word for wagon is, is agala or egla. And the Hebrew word for a, a calf or a female calf is also egla. Same word, spelled the same way. Again, one's a wagon, one's a female calf, nothing to do with each other. But they have the same word. There's some sort of connection. Says Rashi, when Jacob was escorting Joseph to go check up on his brothers all the way back before the whole saga of Joseph was set into motion, before he was, of course, they were going to kill him and then they're going to throw him to the pit and then they're going to sell him. Before all that happened, before he became a slave and he was put into prison and he was falsely accused and became king and there's the seven years of plenty and then the two years of famine. Before all of that, Joseph is a 17-year-old son of Jacob, and they're studying Torah together as Jacob is escorting Joseph to go inspect upon his brothers. 
which subject are they discussing? They're discussing the subject of the Egla Arufa, which is a law that states that in the event of a corpse being discovered, and we don't know how the corpse died, we have to calculate which city is closest to the corpse. And that city is essentially responsible. And the way they solve it is by taking the Egla, this calf, and chopping off its neck. And the idea is it's, it's, it to, to, to awaken and evoke the fact that the people of this town were inconsiderate. They didn't take care of the person who was needy. And therefore, they have to absolve themselves via this process. That was the last subject that Jacob and Joseph were discussing as they were descending down to Egypt. And that's the Egla. And Joseph is sending a message to his father. Not only do I remember what we studied, I remember the Hebrew. I'm sending this message. Oh, here's the Agla. Here's the, here's the wagon. I'm still good. I'm still righteous. I'm still connected to Torah. And here's your proof. So Jacob, here's the message on the very basic level, doesn't believe it. Why doesn't he believe it? Either because it's too unbelievable or because there's no evidence or because even if Joseph is still alive, but if he has lost that character that I infuse within them, who cares? Maybe he is alive, but he's living like a total Egyptian. He sees the wagons. He gets the message, a message that's only conveyable in, not Hebrew, but this high level of language and it all made sense to him, and his, he's once again, his life is restored. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about the Torah being written by God. It's not just a question of authorship. It's a question of, it's an entirely different way of understanding of what it means to write a book and what it means to have a divine book. It's a book written in this divine language that there's no replica to it there's no equivalent to it. There's no other language that has that same characteristic of the holy language in which the Torah is written. I always encourage people, if you could learn Hebrew, even a basic Hebrew, the way you could have a connection with Torah, it's an entirely different level. It's much richer. It's much more profound. It's much deeper because you're able to pick up on all these insights. I mentioned in the past how, I don't remember if it was here or some other podcast or some other discussion that we had, but how words in Hebrew, the actual word themselves, and in totally unrelated or seemingly totally unrelated word, they share the same roots that provides a connection. Now, there's a major discussion amongst the uh, various linguists or Hebrew linguists as to the roots of words are they three-letter roots or are they even two-letter roots? Meaning the word linagain, which means to make music, and the word nogeya, which means to touch, they're only connected with two letters. But can we say that music can be touching? And all the words that have these two letters are in some way part of the same class of words? That's uh, some there. You know, there's an, there is the camp that argues that even two letters are enough to provide a certain basis of of understanding uh, of, of correlation between sets of words. Others say no, it's got to be a three letter minimum. But again, you open up Rashi, and I would even say you open up the Baal Haturim. Baal Haturim is a commentary on the Torah, written by one of the great halachists of all time. 
It's uh, written by Rabbi Jacob, the son of Rabbi Asher. And those names might not mean so much, but Rabbi Asher was one of the greatest Ashkenazic halachic authorities of all time. And he wrote, if you open up any book of Talmud, you go to the back, you have the commentary of the Rush. Rush is an acronym from Rabbi Usher. And that is one of the authoritative commentaries of, of halacha based upon the Talmud. When you have a whole long session of the Talmud, a whole dialogue in the Talmud, you have the Rush who gives you the bottom line and maybe gives you some other applications of that. And when Rabbi Joseph Caro was constructing his monumental, authoritative Shulchan Aruch. How do you decide if you have a, a motley mix of commentaries on a given teaching in the Talmud? How do you decide which ruling to follow? You take the three most authoritative authors of Halacha, namely the Rambam, Maimonides, the Rif, Al-Fasi, and the Rush. And you find the common denominator of, of, of those three. If you have two versus one, you always follow the majority. And that is substantial enough to follow the halacha. If two of those three authorities agree, you're good to go. It's enough to rely upon. Because these are the three pillars upon which the medieval halachic literature is based upon. Now, Rabbi Usher has a son, Rabbi Jacob. Rabbi Jacob is known as the Baal Haturim the author of the Turim, the author of the Pillars, because he wrote a monumental halachic work. But unlike his father, who wrote it upon the order of the Talmud, so the, the book of Talmud, Brachos, first one, starts talks about blessing, about the Shema, he writes on every page, he'll write the halachic ruling that's relevant to the teaching of that page. Comes along Rabbi Jacob, son of Rabbi Ashi, says, you know what, I'm going to present the halacha in a different, in a different format, following a different order. I'm going to base it upon the topics. And I'm going to break it down into four different general subject matters. Arachayim, Yoradeh, Choshe Mishpat, Ezer. Those are very important names because these are the four sections of the Tur or the Turim, which is the book that he wrote. But then the Shulchan Aruch, which is the code of Jewish law written by Rabbi Yosef Cairo, that's using the same format of the tour. The four sections of the Shulchan Aruch are the four sections of the tour. So he writes this monumental commentary and it's organized as the order of the day. The first law is what happens to wake up in the morning. And it goes on from there, you know, prayer, washing your hands in the morning, etc. All the things you got to do in the morning and it's done, it's organized topically. Today, if you want to buy a copy of the, the, the tour, which is again this medieval work of halacha, it's going to be 22 volumes. Again, monumental work of scholarship of halacha. He also wrote a commentary on the Torah. So what would you imagine it would be? It would be the halacha of the Torah, or right, the halacha based upon the, like, based upon the verse of the Torah. Absolutely not. Totally different commentary. It's primarily based upon this of using language, specifically Torahitic language, but specifically the holy language, and trying to extract lessons from it. Have a verse, what's the gematria? What's the lesson? And very frequently he'll he'll do something which is so mind-blowing if you don't see it in every verse. If you just saw it once, you'd be like, oh my goodness, that's genius. And then you see it thousands of times, it's like you almost become numb to how incredible, incredible what it is that you're reading here. He'll take 
a verse in the Torah. And I'll take the Talmud, the way the Talmud uses that verse. And he will show you, based upon all these components of holy language, he'll tell you how there is a connection in using this holy language between the, the, the words of the Torah and the corresponding words of the Talmud. And this happens dozens, maybe scores, maybe hundreds of times. He'll say, okay, we have a, a phrase in the Torah. We have a phrase in the Talmud. Calculate the numerical values, identical. Or take a word in the Torah and say, okay, what are the letters of the words and what's it spelling out? If you take each one of those letters of the words, that's the first letter of a phrase, of, of successive words in a phrase. Or I'll say this, you know, the first letter of this word and the first letter of that word, etc. it's spelling out something. He's going to give you a comment in the Torah based upon this understanding of divine language. Again, this is tremendously expanding and broadening what we mean when we mean divine Torah. Not just who's the author. Is it God or is it man or is it Moses or is it some consortium of, of writers? It's a much more fundamental subject. What does it mean to have a divine Torah? Divine content, divine language, divine timeline. And then we get to the question of divine format, divine style. The Torah is conveyed to us in a totally revolutionary, unique way. We have a written Torah and an oral Torah, and they're both part of, again, they're both part of the same principle, and they're two halves of one whole. When we say Torah, we mean both. It's an unusual format. We don't have any parallel to that, that we have a written corpus, an oral corpus that have to be taken together. Now, we're going to get into the, the very fascinating and intricate details of why that was done and how that was done and the reasons for that, etc. But just, again, at, by way of introduction, what we're told is that these two are mirror images of each other. Meaning, every word in the Torah, the written Torah, that is, has oral Torah insights and lessons that are related to those words in the written Torah. Moreover, every law and insight in the oral Torah can find its roots in the written Torah. But if you take these two and you try to compare them, unless you know how they connect, it won't make any sense to you at all. And the basic of those connections is what's called the 13 methods of derivation, which means that if you take the written Torah and you take these 13 principles, which are 13 different rules of how you extract the oral Torah out of the written Torah, you should be able to get to most of oral Torah, or not most, I would say a lot. A large component of oral Torah can be deduced manually via the 13 methods of derivation. Now, I, I'm saying a lot here, and we'll hopefully go through it in much more granular detail as we go through these subjects. But what we'll find here is something very fascinating. We'll find the written Torah, which is frequently written in, in a laconic or obtuse or what we would say an artful way. And then you get to the Talmud, you get to the oral Torah, 
And we have to ask the question, well, if it's oral Torah, how can we have a book called the Book of Oral Torah? Shouldn't it be oral? Separate question. We'll talk about that at great length. And we'll get to the oral Torah. We'll get to the Talmud. And the Talmud will say how the only way it could have conveyed its meaning was to deliberately use this obtuse, this laconic, or this inartful way only because it was precisely written in that fashion, only that way can you, using again the 30 methods of derivation, get to the oral Torah. But what we'll, what we'll discover, even on a deeper level, is the fact that we have two coexisting concurrent Torahs, written Torah, oral Torah, that are, for the large part, identical, but are entirely different ways of revelation. The written Torah is the enigma that can only be unlocked with the oral Torah. The oral Torah is the clarity that can only be substantiated by the written Torah. And thus, these two together create the divine format of conveying Torah to humanity. And this can be even discovered by opening up any book of Talmud. And again, the idea that you read the Torah and you know what it means, it's like you open the Talmud, you're like, oh, of course I don't know. There's no way I could have figured that out on my own because it's it's so deeply embedded in it. My favorite example I always like to use of this is how, there's two examples, how the Torah in, I think it's chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, talks about getting married. How does marriage happen? Well, there's a whole book in Talmud, how how does marriage happen? And one way is by the presentation of the ring, so we still have today. Well, how do we know that you use the ring, money, or a monetary equivalent to create, to facilitate a marital union? So the Talmud tells us, well, in the book of Deuteronomy, it uses one word to describe marriage. Ki yikach ishisha. And then in the book of Genesis, it's talking about a transaction, a monetary transaction, and it talks about Abraham buying a field and a cave from Ephron for 400 silver coins. And he used the same word, says the Talmud. Aha, we have the same word. In Genesis, as we have in Deuteronomy, they're both describing transactions, but in one of them, we're told that the transaction is facilitated via money. So that's the source that the marital transa- uh, transaction is also facilitated via money. Again, if you didn't have the oral Torah, you wouldn't be able to unpack it. But what we actually discover, and I'm going to say this quickly, and we'll explain it, we'll elaborate it in, in a future date, please, God. We actually had those things together. The way the Talmud is presented is you've written Torah, let's try to deduce the oral Torah from it. We have a question of marriage. How does marriage happen? Oh, we have the word kach. Let's try to find another place where it says the word kach in the Torah and see what it means. That's not how it worked. The way it worked is like this. We have the written Torah. We have the oral Torah. We're given them together simultaneously. In fact, most of the oral Torah came to us before the written Torah was given to us. But the way it's presented in the Talmud is vice versa. We have the written Torah, we're deducing from there. And therefore, Moses tells us, 
you want to get married, you have to use a monetary – or one of the options is you have to use a monetary conference from the husband to the wife. That gets embedded into the written Torah. We're told the law and we're also told where it's hinted or where it's written explicitly, but it will be hinted to us in the written Torah. And thus we have perfect matches of each other written in different formats and each one is a check onto the other and thus we can have the same Torah that Moses got from God. We could have it today. And that's part of the claim and it's, it's going to be a component of it, the fact that like you said, the same tefillin that we have. How do we know it's the same tefillin? The same as the same shofar, the same – how do we know? Part of it is because we got a divine Torah and the divine Torah is given in a way that it's almost idiot-proof. Meaning, at least on a national level, it's given to us in a way that the meaning is going to be passed on even if there is fallible humans along the way who are prone to errors and mistakes it's a divine Torah, not just by divine authorship, but divine methods of conveyance, and that is going to be the prophylactic against human error. And finally, we have the other concept, which is a major concept, and that is that the laws of the Torah are absolute. The laws are divine. They're unchangeable. If you accept Torah, you accept the fact that we have a divine Torah, the divine rules, divine laws must always be true. They're absolute. They're, they're not subject to change. At all. And that again is another component of what we mean when we say that we have a divine Torah. So again, this is, I would say, our initiation into the subject. Principle number eight tells us that we have a divine Torah. And what we discover today, that that's a lot more than just asking the question, who wrote the Torah? Who is the author? Who is given the credits? the literary credits of the book of Torah, it's a much more fundamental question, a much more fundamental subject, and that is, what is Torah? We say, and we have evidence to prove, that it is a divine Torah, and every aspect of it is different because it is a divine Torah. It's it's written in divine timeline. It's given to us a divine timeline. It is written in divine language. The content is not comparable to any other book. The format is, is also incomparable. We have a divine Torah, and our agenda ahead of us is now, as evident to all, quite robust. What does that mean? What are the details? What is the oral Torah written to or how they interrelate? What's the evidence of this? What about the, you know, the Bible critics who seem to argue to the contrary? These are some subjects that we dis, we did discuss in earlier episodes of the Torah 101 podcast. We're going to still go through it in a very, hopefully, please God, rigorous fashion. Uh, it's a fascinating subject. It's one that people most often never study in a very uh, rigorous way. And please God, over the next, uh, months, we're going to immerse ourselves in this fascinating and very critical subject of the divinity of the Torah. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you with any questions, comments, or feedback of any kind.